Hello, Dr. Gentry. My name is Henry Rushmore. I'm from Brainerd, Minnesota. You make an interesting case for the beast number 666 equaling the Hebrew spelling of Caesar Nero. But hasn't the same thing been done for one of the popes, or even Ronald Reagan or Henry Kissinger? Do you have any more evidence that John is referring to Caesar Nero? Yes, as a matter of fact, that is a very interesting and important question. Let me lay down some general indicators that will get us in the ballpark where we'll find Nero standing. Generally, we need to recognize up front that the, the book of Revelation is dealing with first century events. Now, theoretically, a great number of names could measure up to the value 666. It doesn't have to be just Nero. I mean, you could compute various names and come up with that figure. However, you can't just pump any name into the book of Revelation. It has to be a name relevant to the point of Revelation. So not just any name will do. It'll have to be a relevant name. Now, as I indicated a few moments ago, Revelation tells us that the events are shortly to come to pass. Remember, Revelation 1.1 says, the things which must shortly take place. Verse 3 says, the time is near. And then when we go to Revelation 22, he ends up saying the same thing. He says, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And then in verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. The book is bracketed in its non-visionary portions in its introduction, in its conclusion, by statements, these events are near and they're shortly to come to pass. And so whoever 666 refers to, it must refer to somebody in John's life expectancy, something near. Furthermore, when we read Revelation, one of the first impressions you get from the book is that it was written to seven churches that existed in the first century. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 1-4, he says, John to the seven churches in Asia. He's writing to those particular Christians. In verse 11, he says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, etc. He names the particular churches. Now in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here we find that the church in that day, the seven churches he's writing to, are in a time of trial and tribulation. Not only must the name be relevant to the first century, but so must we understand that John is dealing with particular Christians under trial and tribulation. Why would he tell them about something to come to pass 2,000 years in the future? They're suffering. They might say, that's interesting, John, but we're dying. We're being beheaded. Our blood is flowing for Jesus Christ. So John is writing them, and he says particularly, I am your brother in, and fellow partaker in tribulation. So very clearly, John is uh, dealing with real-life issues relevant to the first century. In chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 22, in various other places in the letters to the seven churches, we see the people are fearsome. There are great judgments all around them. Furthermore, in Revelation 6, the specific question is asked when the fifth seal is open. He says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been beheaded for the word of God. And then what happens? 
They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not avenge our blood upon those who dwell in the land? And then in verse 11, it says, There was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told to rest for a little while until their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. A book written regarding things shortly to take place, because the time is near, for people who are in tribulation, who are suffering, crying out, How long? And the answer is, A little while longer. That cannot refer to anything beyond the first century and give uh, legitimacy to the whole gist of the book. Now, of course, the question is, why Nero Caesar? Well, for one thing, I've already indicated, he's in the first century, and so he's, he's at least in the realm of possibility, whereas Kissinger and Reagan and Gorbachev and those people uh, are not in the realm of possibility, too far out of it. Interestingly, another line of evidence in this regard is that if you look in Revelation 13, 18, if you have a marginal reference Bible, you'll notice that there, there is a variant on the number 666. Some manuscripts say 616. And we need to try to understand, well, what's going on? Well, here's what uh, commentators or textual scholars believe is happening in this. The value 666 is a value that is computed on the basis of spelling Nero's name in Hebrew. There are ancient documents that give the spelling of Nero's name from Mubarak and other places in Hebrew characters, and when you add them up, they add up to 666. The Jews had in their alphabet did not have a separate numbering system. Alpha, their first letter, stood for one. Be Beth stood for two. Gimel for three, and on you go until you get to the tens, twenties, thirties, and then the hundreds, two hundreds, etc. So when you take Neron Kaiser, the Hebrew spelling of Nero Caesar's name, and add it up in Hebrew characters, it comes up to exactly 666. But why the variant? Why do some manuscripts have only 616? Well, interestingly, if you spell Nero Caesar's name in Latin, it comes up to 616. So apparently what's happening is some scribe in the early centuries began to change the value from 666 to 616 because the people knew Latin and could make the computation, but people outside of the original sphere of the early um, Christian Jewish background would not be able to compute with the Hebrew numbers. Uh, in chapter 13, verses 5 and 8, we find that the beast demands worship on himself and he makes all sorts of blasphemies. If you know anything at all about Nero Caesar, you will be aware that Nero was a blasphemous character. He was one who um, had on his coins his picture with the rays of the sun coming from behind his head because he mimicked the god Apollo, the sun god who pulled the sun across the sky each day in ancient mythology. Nero saw himself as Apollo, the sun god. There are many references, and I cite some of these in my book, Before Jerusalem Fell, that show that Nero had divine pretensions. Furthermore, if we're aware of the first centuries of the Roman Empire, we'll be aware that the Caesars were worshipped as divine. And so we see that very clearly the evidence in many different directions points and converges upon Nero Caesar. In fact, there are many other such evidences that uh, would take us too long to go through all of them, some 
very fine, subtle evidences, but you can find those in my book, Before Jerusalem Fell. Amanda Wilkins and I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. My question is this, what about the Battle of Armageddon? Is it past or future? Well, certainly the Battle of Armageddon is one of the fearsome features of the book of Revelation, perhaps second only to the beast of Revelation himself, that has so affected the minds of modern Christians and even of a modern uh, culture and art. The Battle of Armageddon, when you mention that, you're in people's minds, you're mentioning something horrible, a great devastation. And so it's a, it is a big feature in the book of Revelation. To interpret it properly, though, we always have to put it in its setting. The Battle of Armageddon, I'll just tell you up front, and then I'll try to give you some evidence for it. The Battle of Armageddon is simply another phrase or another image to speak of the Jewish war against Rome, where the Roman armies came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, tore down its walls, devastated the temple and killed 1.1 million Jews, put uh, tens of thousands in slavery, and uh, just wreaked absolute havoc upon Israel because they had rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, that's my view. I believe A.D. 70 is what he's referring to. Now, why do I believe that? Well, remember first the general time frame of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 1, these things must shortly come to pass. Chapter 1, verse 3, the time is near. Chapter 22, verse 6, shortly take place. 22, verse 10, the time is near. In fact, there are other evidences through the book, Revelation 3.10, Revelation 6.11, and other places that mention a short time frame. But I, I mention those because they open the book and they close it, and they confine us to that particular era of time. So, the Battle of Armageddon cannot be 2,000 or 3,000 years in the future because it's in a book that claims to be dealing with approaching events. Well, what is the Battle of Armageddon? Well, in Revelation 16, where in verse 16 we, mention, we have mention of the Battle of Armageddon, in verse 19 we find that the Battle of Armageddon has some kind of impact, some kind of uh, horror that befalls the great city. Now, we need to ask the question, well, what is the great city? Now, the great city is referred to uh, oftentimes in the book of Revelation as the great city Babylon. Well, obviously, Jerusalem is not Babylon. But we have to recognize the book of Revelation is a book of visions and of symbols. And what he's doing, I believe, is applying the symbol of Babylon to Jerusalem because Jerusalem has gotten as bad as Babylon ever was in God's sight. And interestingly, Babylon's the one that destroyed the first temple. And so now, the image of Babylon, the temple-destroying people, is uh, placed upon Israel and Jerusalem. They're going to destroy their own temple by their own deeds. Uh, obviously, the Romans actually did it, but it's because, once again, of the Jewish misdeeds. But how can I make that equation, the great city, which is called Babylon, how can I apply it to Jerusalem uh, in addition to speaking of imagery. Well, as a matter of fact, if we read in Revelation 11, verse 8, we find the first mention in the book of Revelation of the great city. And where is the great city? It says, the great city where also their Lord was crucified. Now we have John telling us particularly of, quote, 
the great city, end quote, and he applies it to a particular idea. It's the place where the Lord was crucified. There's no other place on earth that we can name other than Jerusalem. So the first mention of the great city in the book of Revelation, the introduction of the great city in the book of Revelation, is told us right up front to be the place where the Lord was crucified. What we have here is an historical reference from Josephus, who was a Jew and was an eyewitness to the events of the book of Revelation, or on my interpretation, but was an eyewitness to the events of the Jewish war on anybody's interpretation, tells us that he watched the siege. He saw the huge 10th legion catapults throwing stones weighing one talent each upon the city. He tells us that they were white. Now when John sees this in vision form, it's like a hailstone uh, storm coming out of heaven. But what it is, we know historically, is that it is the Roman 10th legion with their huge catapults throwing white stones upon the city, which happened to weigh one talent each, which is precisely the measurement that the book of Revelation gives. So once again, the time frame ties us into the first century. The battle of Armageddon is tied to the great city, which the book of Revelation tells us is the place where Jesus was crucified. And we find a, an interesting feature of the Armageddon destruction being talent weight hailstones falling upon the city. And that certainly, I believe, is a reference in visionary form of the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman 10th Legion. Hello, Dr. Gentry. This is Dean from Cleveland, Ohio. What is the mark of the beast? Isn't it at all remarkable to you that for the first time in human history, with the computer chips, the retinal scanners, and the growing one-world economy, that the technology exists to make the mark of the beast a reality? That's remarkable, but irrelevant. Because, remember, the mark of the beast has reference to the beast, which we've already shown to be Nero, the book of Revelation is dealing with short-term events, not long-term events. So my first response to that kind of technology is that it's, it's remarkable, fascinating, but totally irrelevant to the book of Revelation. The Christians in the seven churches dying at the hands of the Caesars are not interested in micro-technology, microwaves, or anything else. They're interested in what is the Lord doing? Why are we suffering? And John is also suffering. He's on the Isle of Patmos suffering with them. And so he gives them words of comfort through this vision that Christ has given him. Now, the mark of the beast, we have to still deal with it because it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, uh, about verses 15 through 18. The number 666 is the mark, and it's in verse 18. I don't believe the mark of the beast is any more literal than the mark that's on the people of God. It's interesting, the very next verse after you read 666 as the mark of the beast is in chapter 14 of Revelation we read these words and I looked and behold the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads now here we need to ask the question do we think that the people of God the 144,000 literally have a mark on their foreheads that have the name of God or something Obviously, this is some kind of image, and I don't believe that the mark that the beast imposes is any different than the mark that God imposes in, in that 
is not a literal circumstance, but is something of a spiritual connotation. I believe, as a matter of fact, that marking someone on their head and on their hand is a metaphor for dominion and control. After all, it says if you don't have the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. The idea of a mark on your head is uh, the attempt to control your thoughts. The mark on your hand is an attempt to control what you do. When we look in the scriptures, for instance, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 8, God says He wants His law on your head and on your hands. He wants to control what you think. He wants to control what you do. Well, in the book of Revelation, as we've indicated earlier, Nero has divine pretensions. He wants to be God. He thinks he's Apollo, the sun god. And he imposes his will upon the people and tries to act as a god so that if you do not bow to Caesar, if you don't listen to his edicts and do what he finds pleasing, then you would be subject to uh, death or subject to expulsion from the land, uh, imprisonment, and things of that sort. So that Nero, as the beast, is imposing his will, his dominion, and attempting to be as God, controlling the minds of men and the activities of men. And so the image of the mark on the head and the mark on the hand is simply a metaphor for attempted control of men's lives. Any present-day mark or image is totally contrary to the book of Revelation, which has a time frame that says this is shortly to come to pass, the time is at hand. It has no relevance to the people who receive the book. The seven churches, it has no relevance to them. And it also has no relevance to the theme in chapter 1, verse 7, which deals with God's judgment coming against those who pierced Christ, the twelve tribes of Israel of the first century. Hello, my name is Tim Tucker and I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. My question is this, in Revelation chapter 11, the Gentiles are given the power to trample on the city of Jerusalem underfoot for 42 months. When does this occur? I believe that this 42-month trampling of the holy city under the feet of the Gentiles is an image that speaks of the siege of Jerusalem, which began in spring of A.D. 67 and finally concluded in September of A.D. 70. And if you add that up from spring of A.D. 67 to 68, it's one year, to 69 is two, to 70 is three, and then you move from spring into September, another six months, you get 42 months. So it's referring to the Roman siege of the holy city, and it's telling us that it will last for a 42-month period. Remember, one of the cries early on in the book is, How long, O Lord, holy and true, how long are these events going to come to pass? There is that interest in the book of Revelation. And uh, John tells us through the vision form that these events will last 42 months. Now, clearly it refers to the temple. If we look in Revelation chapter 11 at what the text says, it says, There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, what's fascinating about this is that he's dealing with the temple. We know that the temple existed in the first century. It doesn't exist today. So it's dealing with an, a, an architectural phenomenon that the people of the first century were well aware of. 
the Jewish temple was very famous. It was called the Herodian Temple because Herod poured so much money into refurbishing it, and it was considered one of the great majestic architectural um, accomplishments of men in the first century. It was well known. This temple is the focus of this trampling, of this siege that is being dealt with in the book of Revelation. In fact, this temple siege is the subject of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. When he goes up on the Mount of Olives and says, See you not all these things? I tell you, not one stone shall be left on another that shall not be cast down. And Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. It's something of great significance for Jesus in his teaching ministry. Several of his parables in Matthew 20, 21, 22, and 23 deal with the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the temple, the judgment of God upon the Jews that result in God sending his armies, that is, the Roman armies, to effect His will. Now, when we look in the Gospel record of the Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21, verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. If you lay down side by side Revelation 11:2 and Luke 21, verse 24, you'll find some remarkable correspondence. You will also find that New Testament scholars will tell you that Revelation 11:2 is rooted in the prophecy of Jesus in Luke 21, verse 24. You'll find the nations mentioned, the trampling underfoot, and the holy city Jerusalem. Three correspondences in the very few words. What I believe is going on here is John is expanding upon Jesus' prior prophecy at the Olivet Discourse and he is applying it to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, in Luke 21, you'll find Jesus says, all these things must happen in this generation. Well, in Revelation 11, it's in a book that says these things are shortly to come to pass and the time is at hand. Really, what more do we need to see that John is pressing the issue of the devastation of Israel in A.D. 70? There's so many correspondences that it surely is not accidental. So the trampling of the city underfoot for 42 months is the time frame of the Jewish war from the time Vespasian entered the Promised Land in spring of AD 67 until the time his son Titus, who took over for him, completed the destruction of the temple in September of AD 70, 42 months where Gentiles trampled the holy city. Hello, my name is Scott Turnage and I'm from Meridian, Mississippi. And my question is this, does history record the merchants of the world mourning after Jerusalem was sacked because no one buys their cargo according to Revelation 18? Okay, in chapter 18 verses 3 and 11 we find that the merchants of the earth mourn over Jerusalem. They mourn over the great city, which I'm saying is Jerusalem because of Revelation 11 verse 8. The question is, well, why would the whole earth mourn because of the destruction of this one city in this one small uh, area of the province of Rome? Well, again, remember, when you read the word earth in the book of Revelation, uh, nine times out of ten or even more, you should make the mental transition between earth to land. The Greek word, the Greek phrase, gay, the Greek word means land, or it can mean the whole earth. 
And so here, the merchants of the land are mourning. And as a matter of fact, we know that Israel uh, was a very productive, uh, robust economy in Jerusalem as the temple was being rebuilt. We have a book by Joachim Jeremias called Jerusalem in the Times of Jesus that tells us of the enormous economy generated out of the building of the temple, which began in the days of Herod, and the temple was not really completed building until about two years before it was destroyed. But an enormous economy grew up around that, and the merchants of the land made a lot of money off of selling sacrifices and uh, exchanging money. You remember Jesus in the temple with the money changers. There was a lot of economy generated out of that. Well, as a matter of fact, all that comes to a stop, a dead stop, literally a dead stop, so that the merchants of the land now do mourn because all their hope of income and of wealth is destroyed in A.D. 70 with the collapse of Israel. Hello, my name is Jay Rogers and I'm from Framingham, Massachusetts. My question is this. Your position, Dr. Gentry, seems to write off altogether the reemergence of Israel as a nation, and even worse, by identifying it as the whore of Babylon and the Jews as the ones who crucified the Lord. Doesn't your position tend to lend itself towards being anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic? Okay, that, that's a good question. It's a question that is asked very often, the anti-Semitism question. But also the first part of it, dealing with uh, my writing off the significance of Israel reemerging as a nation is important too. Well, as a matter of fact, I do write off the significance of the reemergence of Israel as a nation prophetically. I believe it's remarkable as a historical event, but I don't believe it's prophetically significant. I don't believe that the scriptures prophesy the reemergence of Israel as a nation. The New Testament never mentions Israel coming back into the land and being reframed the nation, uh, even where you might expect it. It doesn't mention it. Old Testament prophecies that deal with Israel coming back to the land are either dealing with they're coming back from the Babylonian exile, or they're speaking of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. Either you can go either way on some of those passages where uh, the worship of God expands out into all the world so that as men come in from all nations they're flowing into the church of Jesus Christ. Also we should note that those who deem the return of Israel to the land as prophetically significant also speak of the reinstitution of the sacrificial system, the rebuilding of the temple, and things of this sort. If you read scripture, the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews, this is the whole point of the book of Hebrews, you will find that the scriptures in the New Testament teaches that the sacrificial system has been done away with. It's over, never to return again. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. Okay, now regarding the anti-Semitism charge, that is a grievous moral charge that any Christian who loves the Lord God would want to avoid. Why would we want to persecute Jews or anybody else? Why would we want to be against people? We're for people. We want them to come into the kingdom of God. But if you look up in the dictionary, the definition of anti-Semitism does not tell you it's a particular interpretation of the book of Revelation. That's not in the definition. In fact, I'd like to read a definition from the unabridged dictionary and show you what the word anti-Semitism means. It says, one, prejudice against Jews, 
dislike or fear of Jews and Jewish things. Two, discrimination against or persecution of Jews. Notice that it tells you nothing about the book of Revelation. The preterist view of the book of Revelation that I'm presenting tells us of historical events 2,000 years ago. It does not tell us how we should conduct our affairs with the Jews today. It simply records what I believe to be fact, that God judged Israel in the first century, and as a matter of historical record, their temple was destroyed and they were horribly judged. I believe it was the hand of God. That's an historical interpretation. Preterism does not call for the persecution of Jews today or at any time. Uh, the persecution of Jews is not within the purview of a preterist approach to the book of Revelation. In fact, my view also teaches that the Jews one day will be converted to Christ. They will come back into the kingdom of God, and they will be brothers with us around the throne of Jesus Christ. There's no sense at all in persecuting, and this is just totally a misconception about what the interpretation of Revelation is all about. What's interesting also about this is the dispensational view, which is so widely spread through Hal Lindsey's writings and others, teaches that we are to look for in our own lifetime uh, the destruction of two-thirds of the Jewish people in Israel. That seems to me to be somewhat closer to anti-Semitism because it's calling for something in our own day wherein the Jews themselves will be killed to the tune of two-thirds of their population. In fact, in a book written by Dr. Thomas Ice and myself, Dr. Ice in that book says these words, The Great Tribulation Past or Future is the book. He tells us, it will be a time when God will punish Jacob justly and destroy part of her. And then he quotes from Zechariah, where Zechariah says that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And so the dispensationalists are calling for the destruction of the Jews in the future. Now, they're not saying that they themselves want to destroy the Jews, but the fact is that that view being taught today could set off in some people's minds the notion, well, we ought to do the work of God that we know to be coming. Of course, I know they don't recommend that, and I'm not asserting that they do, but I'm saying if we turn the cards around, an anti-Semitism charge could be generated in the opposite direction. We need to be careful throwing around charges of anti-Semitism because the fact that Christianity teaches that Jesus is the only way to God is today in the major sociological studies considered to be anti-Semitic. It's declaring that Judaism as such is not an approach to God. Furthermore, the gospel records themselves are vilified as being anti-Semitic in orientation. So I do not believe that the charge of anti-Semitism is properly laid against the preterist approach to the book of Revelation, which deals with events 2,000 years ago. Hello, Dr. Gentry. I'm Mercer Sport from Pensacola, Florida. And my question for you is, you built a portion of your argument on audience relevance is there any historical evidence to back up that the first century Christians really understood this message of encouragement that was meant for them? If men do not understand it, if the early church didn't understand it, that doesn't mean it wasn't true. That just simply meant they didn't understand it. So we could theoretically allow that the early church did not uh, understand the book of Revelation as it was written. But Revelation's message is not a message tied simply to the book of Revelation. It's all throughout the New Testament.
In Matthew 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple. In Matthew 20 through 23, he gives one parable after another that deals with the same events as the book of Revelation. 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter, all of these indicate that the destruction of the temple was something of great significance in the first century. So the book of Revelation is simply saying the same thing as these various other prophecies are. But, as a matter of fact, due to the chaos, the very nature of the judgment and the scattering of the people that occurred during the Jewish war in AD 70, we have very few records of Christianity. You read a history book on church history regarding what happens from AD 70 to about AD 90, you find there's very little information that you can discern at all no contemporary documents survive to inform us what the people believed uh, after the events happened and the people right in that day. Later sources, though, tell us that many Christians understood uh, the New Testament and the problems of A.D. 70. For instance, Eusebius, writing about A.D. 330 or 340, tells us that the Christians fled Jerusalem when they saw the Roman armies because, as a matter of fact, they remembered the word of Jesus in Matthew 24 in that case. But remember, the Olivet Discourse says the same thing as the book of Revelation. Several commentators in the early church indicate an awareness that these prophecies were going to be fulfilled by the Roman general Titus, for instance. Uh, those by Andreas and Arethas of Cappadocia. The Syriac versions of the book of Revelation indicate an awareness that it was written under Nero and had reference to Nero by some of the notations found therein. So we do find some evidence uh, from later Christianity, but still very early, that the book of Revelation was understood in this light. But the very nature of the judgment and the scattering of the people and the lack of documentary evidence uh, would tell us why, uh, tell us that we couldn't necessarily point to particulars from people in AD 70, 71, 72, because we simply don't have those records. Besides that, the purpose of Revelation is wider than simply warning Christians to flee Jerusalem. The question really assumes that it was for that particular purpose alone. But as a matter of fact, Revelation not only warns them to flee, but it tells us, explains to us, the collapse of Jerusalem, which as a matter of historical fact, according to Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 15 was the headquarters of the Christian church. The book of Revelation is going to give us a word from God explaining the collapse of Jerusalem. Christians are not to fear that the church is collapsing in this. It's a collapse of Jerusalem and therefore the collapse of Israel. That's the point. So the church is getting an explanation from God through visionary form that Jerusalem is going to collapse. Don't worry. The church has been headquartered there, but it doesn't need Jerusalem. Furthermore, Revelation demonstrates God's concern for His people. It demonstrates that God vindicates the righteous and that He protects the righteous in their times of trial, either by accepting them into heaven at the throne of God, which is far more blessed than being on the earth, or by uh, rescuing His people in time of trouble. There are various ways that God uh, defends and protects His people. So we have uh, various reasons for Revelations being written, and we also have these reasons that inform us why we might not find too much documentary evidence in the decade of the 70s and the 80s as to why Revelation uh, or whether Revelation was understood by the Christians that endured the events.
Hello, my name is Joel Robinson from Spokane, Washington. Dr. Gentry, my question to you is this. It seems to me that if John wrote the book of Revelation about 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem, then your whole argument would fall to pieces. Now, the great church father Irenaeus stated that John actually wrote the book 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem, which would be around 90 AD during the reign of Domitian. Now, how do you explain that? Okay, this is a first order question that always comes up in the context of discussion of the book of Revelation. True, the book had to be written prior to AD 70. True, the early church father Irenaeus made a statement that very often is suggested to undermine that notion. Let me just read his statement and explain some problems with it. Remember, Irenaeus lived in AD, or wrote in AD 175 to 180, sometime in that time frame. Irenaeus in his Against Heresies says this, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in the present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For that was seen no long time since, but almost in our day, towards the end of Domitian's reign. Now, this statement that that was seen almost in our day, at the end of Domitian's reign, is thought to refer to the book of Revelation itself when it was written. However, Irenaeus' statement is grammatically ambiguous. It can be interpreted to mean either that John was seen almost in our day, or it can mean that John saw the Revelation almost in our day. Now, obviously, I would opt for the fact that John saw, uh, was seen almost in our day and not that his Revelation was seen or given in that day. The context seems to suggest this. For after all, what difference would it make when John received the book of Revelation? It still would be the same book, and it still would have the same um, question mark there, who is this 666? But if Irenaeus is saying John lived almost to our day, he could have told us, but he didn't, then that would make a significant statement, a significant observation regarding these events. Furthermore, Irenaeus could be mistaken. In his Against Heresies, he tells us that Jesus lived to be 50 years old and had a 15-year ministry. Uh, in his uh, Heresies of the, of the Early Church, he tells us this, and this very obviously is mistaken. No uh, competent church historian would tell us this. So, either Irenaeus was mistaken, or he was referring not to the writing of Revelation almost in our lifetime, but John's being seen and available to ask questions of almost in our lifetime. So I don't see the statement by Irenaeus as being at all hurtful to the early date for the book of Revelation. Hello, my name is June Duncan and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. Do you believe that the book of Revelation works on a number of different levels? That it meant something to the first century church back then about things that were happening? And it means something to us today about things that are yet to take place? Is there such a thing as a dual fulfillment in the prophecies of Revelation? I can answer that quickly, no. However, I will give you more information than a simple no. Uh, let me give you three points that would render that sort of approach to the book of Revelation null and void. In the first place, the book dogmatically claims the events are near. 
I don't need to read those again, I don't believe, because I've read them repeatedly. But at the beginning and the closing of the book of Revelation, it says specifically that the book has events in it that are near and shortly to come to pass. So anyone who tries to interpret it as in our own day is having to go against what the book dogmatically asserts. In the second place, an angel appears to John at the end of the book. In Revelation 22, verse 10, he says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, if you compare that to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel has an angel that comes to him and says to seal up the vision for later times. But John has the opposite happen to him. He's living in those later times, and the angel tells him not to seal the book, and the reason is the time is near. So a dual fulfillment approach to understanding these prophecies is a sign, in my opinion, of theological desperation, not of exegetical conclusion. Furthermore, when you ask the question, you must realize that what you're asking is, will all of these events occur twice in history, once in A.D. 70 and once in the future? In other words, there'll be two uh, seven-sealed scrolls. There'll be two first beasts and two second beasts. There'll be two groups of 144,000 who are sealed. There'll be two groups of two witnesses. There'll be two battles of Armageddon. There'll be two millenniums. Once you start looking at it and seeing what's happening, you find out that a dual fulfillment is simply not feasible. And more importantly, it goes against what John dogmatically says, these events are near and close at hand. Hello, Dr. Gentry. I'm Ann Hollander from Jacksonville, Florida. My question is, in your view of Revelation, how do you explain Revelation 20, where it talks about the binding of Satan? Are you suggesting that Satan is already bound? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am, and I'm doing that on the basis of the statement of Jesus Christ. Not John, but Jesus. In Matthew 12, Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Very obviously, Jesus is dealing with the coming of the kingdom of God and the fact that he is casting out demons of Satan. And he tells us, how can I do this unless I first bind the strong man? So we see the word of Jesus telling us Satan's bound. Also, in Revelation, we find that Satan is bound for a particular purpose. People often read that and think he is totally, absolutely rendered inoperative. But Revelation 20, verse 3 says he is bound to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that only Israel of all the nations of the earth knew the true God. And the other nations were under satanic oppression through idolatry and other means. But when Jesus comes, this all changes. In Matthew 28, he gives a great commission and says, Go into all the world and make nations, all nations, to be disciples. And so, with the coming of Jesus and the binding of Satan, he's binding him for the purpose that he can't deceive the nations anymore. The nations are now open to a universal spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, uh, when we look into the New Testament, we find other images that if we push them as hard as we do this binding of Satan, we would run into difficulties. For instance, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus says he sees Satan falling from heaven. In John 12, 31, he says, the God of this world shall be cast out. 
In Romans 16, 20, he says, Satan shall be crushed under your feet shortly. In Colossians 2, 15, he says, uh, Christ took these things out of the way and nailed them to a cross and disarmed Satan. In Hebrews 2, 14, he says that Christ rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, John tells us that Christ's coming destroyed the works of the devil. All of these images say the same thing. Satan has been grievously wounded, destroyed in biblical imagery, so that he no longer has control of the minds of men throughout the world. He has been defeated by Jesus Christ. He, is being, he has been bound by Him so that He can't deceive the nations anymore. What's fascinating also about that Revelation 20 passage is that it says in Revelation 20, verse 6, right after the binding of Satan, it says, They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him a thousand years. Well, interestingly, when we turn to the first of the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest unto God. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So the image of the book of Revelation in chapter 20 of the binding of Satan and the kingdom of Christ coming, where we'll be a kingdom of priests, is already informed for us by Matthew 12, verses 28 and 29, and Revelation 1, verse 6. We are and already have been established as a kingdom for Christ. Satan is bound. We can take the gospel out freely. We can resist the devil, and he'll flee from us. My name is Mark Burton from Jacksonville, Florida. My question is, in your view, if you believe that Jesus came to Jerusalem in 70 AD in judgment, do you still believe in the personal glorious return of Jesus Christ? And if so, when in history do you think that would occur and what would be its purpose? Yes, I do believe Jesus will, will return in bodily, physical form at the end of history to judge the world. In fact, he'll be ending history with that coming. This is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, where he bodily ascended into heaven. The disciples watched him with their eyes as he disappeared into heaven. And the angels tell the disciples, he will come in like manner. The judgment coming in A.D. 70 was not a visible, personal appearance of Jesus Christ. It was a metaphorical judgment scene. But Acts 1, verses 8 through 11, and other passages teach a visible, personal return of Christ. The judgment coming on Jerusalem was said to be soon near at hand. It is said to be in this generation. Some who are standing here shall not taste of death until after they see it happen. This is very clear. That kind of coming occurred in the first century, but it was a metaphorical image of the great judgment that God wreaked upon Jerusalem. When we read references to the second advent, they're not confined as being near or close at hand or anything of that sort. They're spoken of as being in the distant future. In Acts 1 verse 7, when the disciples ask him, will you now restore uh, to Israel to the kingdom? He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. He's talking about enormous time frames and seasons. This can't transpire shortly in our generation and things of that sort. In Matthew 25, he gives some parables. The parable of the ten virgins. Five are wise, five are foolish. And it says that the five foolish expected him to return soon and they didn't take enough oil. And after a long time, the master returns. This is not after a short time till AD 70. This is after a long time. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26, 
clearly tie in a visible return of Christ that will effect the end when the resurrection occurs. The end has not occurred yet because history is going on. The resurrection has not occurred yet because dead bodies are still in the grave. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 26 speak of an end to history and that transpires when Jesus returns to effect the resurrection. I'm Jennifer Hooper from Navarre, Florida. In Revelation 20, it speaks of a final apostasy or falling away. Do you teach there will be a final apostasy or falling away just before the return of Christ? Yes, if you read Revelation chapter 20, the last few verses, you'll find that there is a, a, an apostasy, a judgment scene that occurs there. The fact is that for there to be an apostasy and a falling away, there must have been a prior time of overwhelming victory. And so the image of the thousand-year reign of Christ is an image of a time frame in which victory is won, and only at the very end does God allow the forces of evil to arise again, and He destroy them at that time. So there will be a brief apostasy that will be put down by Jesus' return, and therefore we have uh, a negative image of the fact that Christianity will grow and prevail up until that time so that there will be something to apostatize from. Hi, my name is Melissa Atkinson and I'm from Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and my question is this. If the beast and the Great Tribulation are past, will things become worse and worse towards the end, or will they become better? Well, as a matter of fact, I believe that they will become better eventually. That Christianity is one day to be the rule in the world rather than the exception to the rule. Isaiah 2 gives a prophecy of all men and nations flowing into Jerusalem and beating their swords in the plowshares. Isaiah 11 speaks of the righteousness of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seabed. Uh, Psalm 22 verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and shall return to worship God. Psalm 86 verse 9 tells us also that all men will bow before Him in worship. But this is to come about gradually. Also the scriptures teach us, for instance in Ezekiel 17 verses 24, uh, the twig will be broken and put in the top of the highest mountain and will grow to be a great cedar. This is something that comes about gradually. Ezekiel 47 gives a vision of the temple and a stream flowing out from the altar and it first goes up to the ankles and then to the knees and then to the waist. Then it becomes a great river that no man can ford and it gives life to all the trees on its banks. Matthew 13 speaks of the mustard seed and the leaven as the kingdom of heaven growing gradually to overwhelm. Mark 4 verses 26 through 29 teach us uh, the first a blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. So what we have in Scripture is the expectation of worldwide dominance of the Christian faith, ultimately, but through gradual transformation, not through catastrophic intervention. There will be ups and downs, like in our own spiritual lives. Someday we're doing better for the Lord than others. Some days the earth is growing better towards God than toward others. If we look out at the first century church and we see they're being thrown to the lions and tortured at the stakes, things are much better today as we're doing this video to go out and be sold in Christian bookstores uh, in a free land 
that has been impacted by Christianity, we're seeing the fruits of the growth of the gospel. Things are getting better, but they will get remarkably better as time goes on. In the life of a Christian, our progress in sanctification is slow. We're not instantly better for the Lord Jesus Christ each day, but there are times of growth. Now we're talking of a lone individual growing in grace over 40, 50, 60 years as a Christian. But when you look on the cosmic scale of the whole world and the grace impacting it, you know it must take a longer period of time to spread out. In fact, postmillennialism, the belief that the gospel will overwhelm the world, does not have in its definition by the year 1999 you'll be able to see the final results. It says before Jesus returns you'll be able to see the final results. He hasn't returned yet so we're not wrong yet is a way to say it in a facetious way. Furthermore, if we look at the big picture and we compare our situation today with the situation in the church in the first century, those Christians were going to the lions. They were being drawn and quartered. They were being burned alive in oil. They were being tied up in bags with wild dogs to be killed for the amusement of the Romans. Today, here we are in a, in a free land that has been greatly impacted by the gospel. On all of its coins it says, in God we trust. In, our, um, in the Constitution, in Article 1, Section 7, it gives the President Sundays off before he returns a true bill. Why? Because Sunday is a Christian day of rest. And our, and our Constitution even ends, done in the year of our Lord, 1787. We have all sorts of references to the impact Christianity has made upon us. I know a lot of those are ebbing away, but I don't believe they'll ebb away forever. I believe there will be a rejuvenation and a revival because of the, the uh, teaching of Scripture. So what I'm saying is that as we look around about us, we have Christian bookstores in every city, we have Christian radio programs, we have churches in every city, we freely go to worship, uh, we have fellowship. We're not being pursued like the Christians in the first century. So if you take a long-term view of history, you'll see there has been progress. But if you take a longer-term view of history until the very end, you would expect even greater progress, and we do expect greater progress before the end. Hello, my name is Pastor Ed Duncan, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. What advice would you give to Christians who are faced with the end times hysteria that seems to be growing in popularity? Well, in the first place, this is an exciting doctrine when you're dealing with end time events in the book of Revelation. And if you take the view that I'm presenting, it, it will be exciting. It will, will revolutionize the way you view prophecy and the things around about you. So you must remember, and I urge all Christians who want to promote an understanding of Scripture in this regard, 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind and to all. He must be kind to all and be patient and to teach. That's what we should do. We should humbly present this to others, recognizing that we didn't always believe this. It took us uh, a time to come into this viewpoint, so we must expect that others will have to take time as well. Secondly, I would graciously ask my friend that's asking about the book of Revelation or challenging me on it, I would say, would you mind just reading the first three verses of Revelation and explain that on your view? where he says these things are shortly to come to pass and the time is at hand. You will find that he will have difficulty explaining that. 
And he needs to be aware those verses are there. They're not very exciting verses. They're not, uh, they don't have seven heads and, and uh, swords and all of these things and locusts, tails, and that's all later. But the first introductory words of the book tell us very clearly these things are hap to happen in the first century. And then also, I would recommend and I would challenge my friend to read some books on this topic from this perspective. In fact, I have a number of books that I would recommend. I would recommend that they get this book from Zondervan uh, by Marvin Pate called Four Views on the Book of Revelation. I'm the contributor to that and obviously I'll be presenting this view um, to uh, the Christian who's interested in this. I would recommend also that they uh, get Bach's book Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. In this, I defend the notion that Christianity will become the rule rather than the exception in history. I would also encourage the Christian to get the debate book between Dr. Thomas Ice and me called The Great Tribulation, Past or Future. This book deals with these issues from a dispensational perspective on the one hand and my perspective on the other. We interact and we challenge each other, and that's a very helpful tool for teaching this. And then I would also perhaps recommend getting my book, Before Jerusalem Fell. This book um, teaches this approach to Revelation in great detail. And then uh, Gary DeMar's book, Last Day's Madness, deals with these issues in a very compelling way. And also a book by another friend of mine, uh, Keith Matheson, Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope. These are good books that are available that people might find useful in uh, promoting these views. And then I would also, in closing, just remind them that the dispensational viewpoint has made so many mistakes. Here's a book by Hal Lindsey called The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. And here we are 20 years after the 1980 and nothing has happened. And yet the 1980s were supposed to be the countdown to Armageddon. And I will guarantee for you that 20 years from now Armageddon still will not have come. 50 years from now it still will not have come. And so hopefully this video will be available in a hundred years and people will say, you know, dispensationalism constantly keeps missing the target. Perhaps the preterist view is the correct one. And I believe it is. And I believe it on the basis of the Word of God that says very clearly these things are shortly to come to pass for the time is at hand. Thank you.